You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. have a Bible, if you would, turn to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament, the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And what we're going to do for the next uh, four weeks here at church is going to be a little different. We're going to do a sermon series that's going to focus on our church uh, mission statements and the biblical basis for that. And, um, you know, in any sort of organization, particularly in a church, it has a life cycle kind of similar to a plant. You know, a plant starts out and if it's going well, it's alive and it's growing. That's just the early stages. If you're starting a business, you're starting a church, I can tell you early on, you just want to be alive and growing. You just want to have a reason to exist. You want to grow, you want to begin to thrive. And what happens with a plant and what happens with a church or anything, at some point you, you want to become stable. You have to become stable. And there's things you do to become stable. And then the ultimate goal is to, goal is to perpetuate. I mean, a really successful oak tree doesn't just become a big oak tree. It actually spreads oak trees. Yet for, for one generation to the next. And that's kind of the, the arc we want to see happen in our church. We want to be alive. We want to become permanent and stable. And then we want to perpetuate our church uh, for generations. The, the vision of our church, which tells you what you want to become, what you hope to become, is we want to become a vibrant church in a pivotal city that perpetuates the greatness of Jesus Christ for generations. That's, that's our goal. We wanna, I want to see our church uh, not only be a great church that's vibrant and alive today and for the next 10 years, but also I want to be the church that my grandkids come to when they come to the University of Georgia. And I want to be the church where, where things are happening here in this church 50 years and 100 years from now, and that it's just a living, alive, vibrant church for generations. And that's the mindset of our church leadership, and that's what we are aiming to become. That's our vision. That's what we want to become. Our mission statement is, is how we get there. What, are, what do we do? What are we about doing? What, what kind of activity, what kind of focus do we want to consistently have? And the mission statement of our church is we exist to honor the greatness of Jesus Christ by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. And our heart is this, if we can have that, that can describe what we do, what we consistently do, that our church consistently is about honoring the greatness of Jesus Christ. We're consistently about spiritual growth, about growing spiritually. We are consistently emphasizing the importance of living it out authentically. And then we're also participating in its purposes. If we do those things, we will become and continually to be a vibrant church in this pivotal city, and we'll be able to perpetuate uh, his name for generations. That's a little bit of what we're going to do. So I want to talk about that mission statement, honoring the greatness of Jesus Christ, growing spiritually 
by living authentically and participating in his purposes and kind of give you a little bit of a biblical basis for that. Now, if you will, um, if you haven't yet, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at a, at a hymn that is here. Let me, let me uh, start with verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. This is Paul's writing, and he tells these guys, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9 says, therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then verse 12 says, therefore, my dear friends, because of all this, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, Paul's writing to a, a group of people that live in an area called Philippi. He's writing probably around 60 A.D. is when he's writing this. Somewhere they say between the mid-50s to 60 A.D. And, and in this city he's writing to Philippi. It's a really interesting city. It's kind of a privileged city in the Roman days because it was what's called a Roman colony. And they had a very special relationship um, with the Roman government and with Caesar. Uh, the, we found out the city of Philippi actually was started after a conquest. And it was a place where ex-Roman soldiers could go and live and set up. So it was a really patriotic place at least with Roman patriotism it was very wealthy and it was very vibrant and very happening and in that city they were very loyal to Caesar they practiced something called Caesar worship they would actually worship him as a god when you entered uh, the city of Philippi often they would have a you would go to this little area where there would be a priest and they would be offering up sacrifices to the God of Rome, and they would be honoring up to Caesar. And if you went in there, you would uh, pay some money, and they would offer a sacrifice up, and they would take some ash, and they would smear it either over your hand or your forehead, and that would acknowledge that you were with Rome. You were one of their, uh, their guys. And, and you would say this. You would say the Roman people would look at you, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And your reply would be, Caesar is Lord. And in that community, greatness was represented by this powerful, wealthy, domineering political figure, the Caesar of Rome. And so Paul's writing to these people. And he's also, what he's writing here is what's called a, 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 a Christological hymn. 
It's a uh, hymn that was, it was when the church began, this is kind of interesting, even before the New Testament was written, when the church first began, it was a lot of, it was all Jewish Christians. And they would have to articulate what they believed. And what they would do is they would write out these sort of short sayings and they would write out songs that articulated their theology. And these songs, when Paul's writing and Peter's writing and whoever wrote some of the other books, Hebrews and others, when they're writing their, their letters, they would take fragments from these songs and they would quote them sort of like citing a source in a paper because they were older than the New Testament. They were the original way they thought. And so this kind of hymn represents how Jewish people that became Christians came to understand Jesus. And in this hymn, it's really interesting, they quote a a chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 45. And Isaiah 45, back in those days, back then they didn't have... The Jewish people took the Bible very seriously. You guys have ever heard me talk about this? They would like, like when, when you were a Jewish five-year-old boy, you went to school. And from age five to age 10, a rabbi taught you the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. At 10 years old, pretty much every Jewish boy could recite all five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. They knew them completely. And then they would go to school and actually by age 13, most of them could memorize the entire Bible, the Old Testament. They had competitive memory. So unlike us, they didn't have a favorite Bible verse. They had favorite Bible chapters. They were a little more into it. And Isaiah 45 was like their John 3.16 or their I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it's just like that was a big Bible ver- chapter in those days. And, it, and if you read Isaiah 45, it's a great chapter about it just reinforces, it's very in your face, sort of the backbone of Jewish theology. It is the Jewish, what they call monotheism. There is one God, God alone. And God is saying things like I created the world I didn't have anybody help me. I did it all by myself. I am God. There is no other. And over and over again, it just says in Isaiah 45, God is the only God. God alone. And this verse that's in verse um, uh, 10, when he talks about every knee will bow and every tongue confess, actually comes from that chapter. We read it for inspiration. So Paul's kind of borrowing this from from, um, that chapter. So it's a real strong assertion of Jewish monotheism, <clears throat> and this hymn is doing that. That's what it's, it's, it's asserting in its thing. And in Judaism, this is kind of important to understand, there are two things that were, were crucial to their religion. Two, two, one event, and the other thing is the way they understood God. Uh, the central event in Judaism, ancient Judaism, was the Exodus. That was the big event. They had other events that were big, other events that were celebrated. But if, if you look at their, their, their festivals, a lot of them were around this big event, the Exodus, this idea. And, and, it, because it, and, it, and the other thing that's really big is associated with it, it is the name of their God. The Hebrew pronunciation was Yahweh. And it was sacred to them. They literally would often just say, the, instead of saying the word Yahweh, they would just say the name. 
the name. And they had this idea and this sort of way of thought developed around it. They, had the, they understood God's name by this thing called the tetragrammaton. You want to try and say that one with me? You know, the tetragrammaton. And it was really meant the four letters. There was four letters in the word Yahweh. But it was basically saying the name of God tells us everything about him. And this incident, Exodus, tells us what he is. And see, in those days, everybody had a God. Everybody had a religion. There was polytheism, multiple gods everywhere. And the Hebrew people were captured. They were slaves in a very polytheistic culture in Egypt. Egypt had many gods, all kind of gods, and they were in this slaves with their belief in the one God, their God. And Yahweh told Moses, he says, I'm going to deliver my people, and in doing so, I'm going to reveal my name. They're going to know that there's no other God but me. And so it's kind of interesting when you look at the Exodus story from the way it would have looked to somebody back in those days. Again, Egypt had many gods. One of them was a god named Jinwen. And Jinwen was a three-headed serpent. And what would happen is that when a foreign god came into Egypt to cause trouble, this god, Jinwen, would attack that god and eat him up. So when Moses first goes to Pharaoh... What's the first sign he does? He takes his rod, it turns into what? A snake. And Pharaoh's magicians come and they turn their rods into what? How many snakes? Three snakes. And what happens to their three snakes? It's swallowed up. And what that was symbolizing is something pretty remarkable to those people. It is our God, Jinwen, it's supposed to swallow up a God when it invades. But this God is swallowing up our God. And if you look at the plagues of Egypt, every one of them is connected to a God they worship. They worship frogs. They worship livestock. One of the, the greatest gods in the Egyptian pantheon was a God called Ra. It was the God of the sun. And for when it was dark for three days and the sun didn't come up, it was symbolizing to them that this God of the Hebrew people is conquering the Egyptian gods. He's dominating their gods in their own territory. And in this way, God revealed something very powerful and profound to the Hebrew people. Your God is the only God there is. He is God alone. There is no other. And that was crucial to the Hebrew people. That event, the exodus... And the understanding of who God is that emerged from it, our God is God alone, was it categorized their poetry, their theology, their morality. Everything about them was, was wrapped up in that understanding. Okay? So we've got this. And so Paul comes in and he uses these kind of thoughts in this hymn in a way to describe Christ. And he says that Jesus' name is the great name. This is the name of God. This is, just as Yahweh is the name of God, more so Jesus is the name of God. It ex the name Jesus explains God in a clear and a more profound way. And here's what, he, here's what he says about it. And if you look at this passage, it's kind of interesting. 
Do nothing out of selfish, vain conceit. Have this mindset in you that was in Christ. And he goes on to describe what Jesus did. How Jesus emptied himself. He existed as God. But instead of being a God that goes and takes advantage and exploits and uses his superiority for his own advantage, he actually used his superiority to serve others, to give to others. Who he was and what he had, he emptied out to serve others. And particularly, ultimately, not only just in becoming a human being, but actually in dying on a cross. In dying on a cross. And again, Paul's writing into a world where greatness is defined by status and glory. It's defined by power. And it's defined by wealth. Just like our world. And Paul is saying something different. He says greatness is defined a whole nother way. It's not defined by accumulating and accumulating and possessing and owning. It is defined by depleting and emptying yourself and your impact and your effect on those around you. And this is what he's pointing to here. There is a greatness in Jesus Christ that is absolutely sacred. And it's so easy to just forget about it. It's so easy to just take it for granted. It's so easy for it to not be novel in our lives because we can sort of marginalize it and we can you know, just get religious and get familiar. But we forget how extraordinary it is that in history, the God who created the worlds, a God of absolute sovereignty and power, became a human being. And that human being died on a cross for our sins. When we think about glory, we think about power, we think about wealth, what do we think of? You know, guys with flamboyant lifestyles and extravagance, People who command and people do. But here's what the scripture says. In Revelation, when they're worshiping Jesus, it's saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and power and wealth and praise. And what the Bible describes there is that is literally what is said and sung in heaven forever. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and power and wealth and praise. See, here's the thing. Jesus Christ's greatest moment, his most glorious moment, was when he was walking up the Via Della Rosa, the path to the cross, scorned by men, covered in spit and shame. He was never more glorious. He was never literally more powerful than when he hung helpless on a cross. He was literally never wealthier 
than when he took his holiness and his divinity and used it to retire the debt of the entire sinful human race. Glory, power, and wealth is his. He's writing to people 2,000 years ago, and he's telling them, a people that see greatness depicted in Caesar, this pomp and this display, and he's telling them, guys, I'm telling you, greatness is in this Jewish carpenter that was crucified. And he says, to him, every knee will bow. To him, every tongue will give allegiance. His name will be the greatest name on the face of the earth. He said that 2,000 years ago. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Can anybody tell me the name of the Roman Caesar who was celebrated in 60 AD by this culture? Anybody tell me his name? Can you tell me anything about him? Tell me one great thing he did, one quote, one memorable event that describes his greatness. This guy was celebrated and lauded by the known world. We don't even know his name. We don't know a thing about him. Anybody ever heard of a Jewish carpenter back then named Jesus of Christ? You think? What's the point here? The greatness of Christ eclipses the greatness of, of the great men of his day. Why? Because what he did with what he had. He didn't use his divinity. He didn't use power to exploit it. He gave it away. He depleted himself to serve others. And this is what greatness is about. It is a sacred greatness. God depleting himself of divinity, of privilege to serve sinful, broken, desperate humanity. And let's look at some things he talks about in, in honoring this greatness. Look at, look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others more than yourself. What a really practical way to really honor the greatness of Jesus Christ. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Live your life to, for others. Um, and he goes on to describe this, and then he comes to verse 12, and he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my abundance, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to will and to work his own good pleasure. Here's a really powerful thought. Is that we see what Christ was like. We see this demeanor. We see this attitude. And when he says, hey, guys, look, work out your salvation. Work on living this way. Work on, on being, work on developing a selflessness. Work on developing an other-centeredness in your life. Work on it. And he just says this, because this, this is very unhuman to do. You ever notice that? Putting others before yourself, not being vain, not being selfish. It, it, it's very, and he's saying, look, God's at work with you, though. 
This is what he wants out of your life. His good purpose, his pleasure is that your life become great in the same way Jesus' life became great. Not by accumulating, not by possessing, not by being celebrated for what you have or what you can do, but it's by your effect on others. It's by serving others. It's when you literally are able to consider others more important than you. That's when the greatness of your own personal life, the matter, the meaningfulness of your own personal life will begin to emerge and surface when that happens. See, this is the greatness we honor. It's a greatness of a God who is deep down, he's sovereign, he's powerful, but deep down, Our God is a selfless servant. What you see in Jesus is what the God of the universe is like. A God who loves humanity. Broken, sinful, selfish, grasping humanity becomes one with us to free us from that and make us like him. And this is what it means to honor the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's to be like that example. When we lower ourselves, we deplete ourselves to serve others, to serve others. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful and profound statement about what you're like, about your name, about what greatness is, and how you desire to see that honored and worked in our lives. And I pray that you would just take the profound truths in this passage, make them real and make them personal and make them practical in our lives. This is so against the grain of our nature. This is not very human to not look after your own interests, but to actually put the interests of others first. But we believe what the scripture says, you are in us to will and to work your purpose. You're in us to bring this out of us. And we pray you do that work in us. We, we thank you for Christ's example. We thank you for what he's done. And we pray that you just make this real and personal in our lives. We Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.